and welcome to Fueling Transformation, a podcast hosted by Impact 100 Metro Detroit, a nonprofit serving nonprofits. We are a group of women from all walks of life who practice the work of collective giving. This year, we will have given over $860,000 since our inception in 2016. Fueling Transformation has been our motto since day one, and it was a no-brainer that it become the name of our podcast. The amazing nonprofit organizations in Metro Detroit are the true heroes. Our grants simply help fund transformational projects that these nonprofit heroes work so hard to execute. This podcast is intended to highlight the work of local nonprofit heroes in Metro Detroit, connect our members and listeners to those nonprofits who could use their help, and aid women in becoming philanthropic leaders in their communities. And now, here's Fueling Transformation. Welcome to Coffee and Conversations. It's a monthly virtual discussion hosted by Impact One Metro Detroit. And we feature nonprofit heroes who are doing good things in the community. Today we welcome Nisha Bezzi. Did I say that right? <laughs> Nisha Bezzi, founder and yes, CEO yes. of Zaman International, and Deb Drennan, CEO of Freedom House Detroit. And both of their organizations are past recipients of um, Impact 100 Metro Detroit grants. I'm Eileen Werner, and I'm your host for today for Coffee and Conversations. So our focus this morning is on refugee resettlement programs, and in particular, Afghan uh, refugee resettlement. So we've been hearing a lot in the news about Afghans fleeing Afghanistan and looking for a better life. Um, And I've heard recently that we're expecting several hundred to be resettled in the in all, not just Southeast Michigan, but Grand Rapids as well. So we're anxious to hear about how Zaman International and Freedom House are supporting these resettlement programs. I'd like to start by having Nija and Deb introduce themselves and talk a little bit about their organizations and then what kind of work you're doing in Afghan resettlement programs. So Nija, you want to go first? Sure. Good morning, everyone. I hope that uh, you're enjoying your coffee and I love this morning meeting. I've done at least one, maybe two. I can't quite remember, but I think this is a wonderful way to kick off our day. Uh, So again, I'd like to thank uh, Impact 100 for helping to fund Zaman's initiatives. And uh, you'll be surprised to see what's happened here with the money that we have. It's just incredible. And Eileen, I want to thank you for hosting. And hello, Deb. Uh, So uh, Zaman uh, is... uh, Well, it started 20 years ago. I'll keep this very brief. It started 20 years ago uh, because I found a baby dying in a laundry basket uh, with, it was Iraqi refugee family. At the time I was working in critical care at the Beaumont Oakwood hospital site. So um, it was a very painful story, but when I saw that they had literally nothing and I thought that they were actually moving in and that's why they had nothing, you know, I I was pulled, maybe called, who knows. Um, to serve uh, in in the world of poverty. So 15 years out of the van, finally got an office um, and the office gave us an address that then led to a 40,000 square foot building here in Inkster, our Hope for Humanity Center. And everything happens in this one spot. So it's case management, food. There's a wonderful client food uh, pantry here, uh, clothing, household items, we're opening up a clinic because of COVID. We'll talk a little bit about that. We have a culinary arts kitchen. 
And now we have a second commercial kitchen to take product to market and employ through workforce development, our clients who come through our program. We have an industrial sewing program now and a beginning sewing program. We also have a very amazing literacy program. There's a lot of love here that happens at Zaman. And um, we don't have an agency. We have a commitment to the cause of breaking the cycle of poverty. Wonderful. Thank you, Eileen. Wonderful work. Thank you. And Deb? Thank you. um, So uh, Freedom House Detroit, we provide services to asylum seekers. And asylum seekers, which we'll get into more, are refugees, but a different status than the many um, families, individuals from Afghanistan who were uh, provided evacuation uh, through the president's um, the administration's plan. So these are people that find their way to the United States versus, you know, um, helped with their escape. So um, one of the things that's critical is for asylum seekers, they're not eligible to receive an income, nor are they eligible for any stream benefits such as, um, you know, again, food stamps or healthcare, housing. So Freedom House Detroit provides the housing and those, uh, they call them basic needs, essential needs. But along with that, um, we're pioneers in the asylum field and uh, for 40 years remain the only full service asylum services program in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And our folks come from all over the world, uh, depending on, um, you know, political uh, conditions and reasons why people must flee. There's legal criteria to apply for asylum. And so we have a lawyer on site who uh, assesses all of the uh, cases that come in. And um, so we're, we're pretty unique and uh, a pretty proud organization to uh, provide the services we do, especially with the hundred support. I knew there was a difference between uh, refugees and asylum seekers, but I was not aware that asylum seekers were not eligible for a lot of the services uh, that are available to a lot of other refugees, people in need. Yeah, and and to be clear, it's a ninety-day support for refugees, so it's okay. not considered a short-term investment up front, and then you know for uh, refugees, but it's still a huge battle. So, okay. Um, mm-hmm. So can you both talk a little bit about, um, you know, a little, in a little more detail, the kinds of support that you provide and maybe even kind of the process, um, how, how refugees come into your organization and how you assess what services they need, uh, what you provide, what kind of partnering you do with other organizations Uh, What does the whole cycle look like? For Freedom House, uh, this is, uh, it's word of mouth. Um, Sometimes referrals come from uh, maybe even groups or individuals on the call who meet someone in the United States and and identifies themselves as usually the the languages, I'm in trouble, I can't go home, I don't know what to do. Um, Some are, are referrals by actual former clients or our alumni, as we call them. Um, who have been through the program and granted asylum and, um, and others are family members um, who are what we call the derivative of the claim so that they're able to come into the country. So um, once they arrive in the United States, uh, any uh, you know, refugee asylum seeker, they have not been, um, you know, they haven't met with any officials prior to coming. So they don't have a social security number. They don't, they, 
um, which are the uh, driver's license, the tools, you know, to be able to move along in, in building their self-sufficiency. So we have a lawyer on site who actually meets with the, the claimant. And in order to seek or obtain asylum, um, an individual claimant must be able to prove that they have been persecuted um, or tortured and have a well-founded fear of further future uh, persecution or torture if they remain in their country. And those are based on one of, or more of, uh, one of five grounds. And that is, uh, so they're uh, the religious practice um, uh, or beliefs. It could be their nationality, their race, their political opinion. And then there's another criteria, which is the other category. And that other category could be uh, domestic violence. Uh, it could be LGBTQ community. So that's a subcategory. And when an uh, individual or family comes in to apply for asylum, our lawyers has to really meet with them and uh, to be able to determine that those are, they meet one of those uh, criteria. And then once that's been a question. A quick question. What about um, those who were English translators um, as the evacuation was going on? We heard a lot about um, Afghans who had been translators um, yeah. were afraid to cross the Taliban line to get into the airport. Would those qualify? Yes, that would be a brilliant example of someone who couldn't come through in an evacuation plan, but had to find their way out of the country and came to Freedom House. So that, okay. that would be a great example, but they still have to be able to prove the well-founded fear. So we know, I mean, you know, from the media, from even individual accounts now, we know why people are fleeing, but they still have to meet the legal definition. So it's still okay. a long process, regardless if, you know, um, we've had people that, uh, had a public uh, following. We knew who they were, they knew who they were, but they still had to go through that legal process to prove on paper and to the asylum officer that they really did have that well-founded fear. So, um, you know, that's a that's a trick. And then I, I can't say, um, you know, proud to say, actually, I was gonna say, I can't say it without um, the man, but our community partners are what helps us make, uh, you know, our program so successful. So clients live in our house. If they're not eligible for income, then they can't afford rent. They don't have it afford food. Uh, and also victims of torture and persecution, they need some medical care. And I think, um, you know, it, it's, they become vulnerable to trafficking if they're not provided services quickly. Because if you think about any one of us, uh, some of you I've met personally, but if you think of any one of us at one at this moment, we have to leave our country with just whatever we're wearing, whatever, whatever our handbag might have by the door, and we walk out, there's a lot of things that we're leaving behind. And that is also inclusive of the culture, the, you know, the, the, the sense of, of belonging into a community. So when people um, come, especially um, anyone, well, it's true for any region of the world, uh, our partners support us through our services, which then connects them to the community and the culture so they desperately are so lonely for, right? So uh, one of our, our greatest, uh, you know, in terms of partners is, is the mosques, so that when people can go and worship, and then meet other people, and then there's a connection. Um, and like Saman, they, um, when we first moved to our new location, um, 
uh, Naja was there and visited us and, and, you know, amazing, but her hand was, both hands were extended open. Just tell us what you need and we're here for you. And that's really um, a community response. We live in work in Southwest Detroit. Our clients uh, go to school there. The kids go to school there, all our work, but it's, it's that extended hand of the community that says we want to make a difference. And, the psychological and physical torture that these people have endured is unless you have escaped, it's something we just really can't understand. Um, and so the supports around that are really, really critical. So are you providing the, um, the mental health support through your agency or you, are you partnering with other agencies like Zamat? Yes. yes. Okay. So, you know, the idea is a one-stop shop um, so that, because again, if asylum seekers are at risk and vulnerable um, and, you know, you don't know the community you're living in, we like to be able to offer these services in one location and or provide referrals to partners that we're safe. And uh, so we do, um, we do both. Correct. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's it. That's um incredible, um, it, it, tough enough to leave your own country and start a life again in a new country, but under the circumstances in which um, um, asylum seekers leave is, is um, yeah. that much more difficult. We're ourselves traveling overseas, right? We all, mm -hmm. It's just an experience to travel abroad. But after a while you go, I just wanna get home. I just wanna eat a whatever that is. I just wanna sleep in my own bed. I mean, that's after a couple of weeks. <laughs> Imagine yeah. having to flee all of that and never having an opportunity, plus not being able to pack a suitcase to have um, even mementos, right? I don't know how many of us carry on our phones now, probably photos and you know things that restore us to some sense of purpose when we're having a bad day. All of that is not available any longer to um, people that are coming. When you leave with just the clothes on your back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Nasha, what, um, so how are your services different? How do they complement what Freedom House offers? Um, so first, just a big shout out to Freedom House. When I started this work, I actually started long before Zaman became Zaman. So this is just a personal, you know, moment here. It was back in 1990, 91, 92 in there when I first met Freedom House and it was because I was helping a Bosnian refugee um, seeking asylum. And, you know, I, I did not know at the time about Freedom House. And, you know, I was driving down over by the Ambassador Bridge. And I'm like, who would have thought about this? Like, what an incredible, wonderful, mm, compassionate way to think about, you know, our humanity. And, you know, in the end, we talk about these kinds of things like Freedom House, you know, 40 years later. But in reality, this country is built on people who fled persecution. Right. And, as, and, and in many ways, we're built on the concept of seeking new land for asylum. So that in the very beginning years, before Zaman became Zaman, before I met this family that was an Iraqi refugee, and I was working with the Bosnian refugees, you know, on simple things like coat dries and, you know, just doing whatever I could as a human being to help the human family. Um, down at Freedom House is where I really started to understand this idea of seeking refuge and that a refugee is really that kind of a person. 
And coming from a family, although my family's been in America 135 years, many who came over, um, especially when I was younger, they came over fleeing, uh, you know, the politics. Uh, like had they had the kids grown up, there would have been like a mandatory army in the Syrian government that they would have had to have joined. And if they had a different political or religious view, which they did, um, hence the upheaval that we saw in Syria, it took a long time to happen. But you know, those kind of um, those kind of movements, they they brew for a long time in different countries. And so then they fester and then they boil over and then they turn into civil war and war. So having said all of that, I just want to congratulate Deb on her leadership and um, on what they do. I, I, Zaman currently has a client. I don't know if we've closed the case or not that um, is with Freedom House. And so Zaman focuses on women and children, but for the most part, women who have children who live in extreme poverty. And that means that they live below $12,000 a year. The great majority live below $10,000 a year. And that's with all their subsidies. But they are either abandoned or abused, perhaps they're divorced, or perhaps they're widowed, or they may have a child um, who is differently abled, or they have a life partner who is you know, completely disabled or differently abled usually from long-term illnesses like you know, MS or whatever it may be, cancer. So that's where Zaman comes in. Now, originally when we started this and I started working with the Iraqi refugee people, I called the program a refugee resettlement program. But that was just a natural way for me to coin it. I didn't, at the time, I wasn't knowledgeable enough to know that there was actually resettlement organizations in the United States. I just wasn't learned. So I didn't know about like Catholic services. I didn't know about Lutheran services. I didn't know about Bethany, where they actually have the contracts to receive the refugees. And then they are actually the resettlement organizations. Mm, okay. So, and usually, and Deb helped me with this, but our experience has been that the resettlement organizations are in place from the time of arrival and, you know, so that, that they're actually going through processing. And I, I don't like that word at all. Once they arrive to the United States and then, for example, Bethany and Grand Rapids has the contract for the Afghani refugees. I don't know if other resettlement organizations in Michigan do, but right now, currently we're working with Bethany. Um, they'll be involved. Our experience has been, that the refugee res uh, resettlement organizations are involved for about three months. Mm -hmm. uh, and then their funding is limited. Right. So then what happens with those families after the refugee resettlement organization is done with that piece? And we went through this with the Iraqi refugees. We went through it with the Syrian refugees. And now we'll go through it with the Afghani refugees. The difference is, is a man is way smarter now. It knows what to do and how to do. So we moved from being a refugee resettlement, what I was then calling organization, to a refugee resettlement program that we have that's part of the wheelhouse of Zaman services. So it's a piece of the pie now. It's not all that we do. But the good news is we have a niche in refugee resettlement. And so many of our students and clients are refugees um, who 
you know, are now here. And we do everything from case management to manage the trauma because so many are traumatized um, from case management goal setting. You know, what is it that you really want to do with your life? Because, you know, remember, it's not just that they've left their country. As Deb says, they've left a life behind them. Many of them have left family behind them. Many of them have even left children behind. And so, you know, they're, they're showing up with traumas that some of us may understand, but many of us don't. I can't claim that I understand their trauma. My mom lives down the street. My mother-in-law lives, you know, a couple miles away. My children are all around me. My grandchildren are around me. I don't know that level of suffering. But having said that, we then move them through our program. So the basic needs, and that means everything, everything from Christmas presents to backpacks to coats and boots for the winter and mittens to Chromebooks, um, everything that they would need, rental assistance, um, sometimes appliances, sometimes furniture. And then they come into this kind of one-stop shop and then they're able to kind of see a new world of opportunity. So they can self-select all of the beautiful goods that you all donate to Zaman, the household goods. They're able then to select a vocation in either sewing or in culinary, both of which started because our clients identified that that's what they wanted to do. And interestingly enough, they decided that because they were used to being moved around or living in refugee camps. Mm -hmm. And so those are portable skills, which I would never have thought of, like see much of what we know we've learned from them. And Mm -hmm. so here's an opportunity for them to break their cycle of poverty so that their children don't have to live in it. So Zaman focuses on the poverty piece, but not, we have to be careful, not all people seeking asylum live in poverty. Not all don't have skills. Some of them are highly, highly educated. They could be doctors and professionals and so on and so forth. So the asylum seeker category could be very different than the category, the refugee category. And the refugees themselves, many of whom are professionals, lived scientists and, and, you know, again, surgeons and doctors, we've seen it all here. We have a a doctor right now um, from Somalia who was a physician and arrived here, and, and I'll end with this. Uh, but you know, I met her in our food pantry, and I just happened to somebody fainted, a client, and from a blood sugar reaction. So I ran as a nurse to help, and she ran. And I could tell right away she knew what she was doing. So having not met her yet, I said to her, "You know, how do you know how to do?" This? She said very shyly, "Well, I'm a physician." Wow! I'm telling you, I sunk to the ground. Now, through our support, we've been able to help her take her exams. She's now applying for her residency. Wonderful. We've paid for over a year of her rent. And, uh, you know, she's back up on her feet. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's a testament that it's, it's really one person at a time. I mean, you know, I would, I'm altruistic enough to think I can save the world. But, I mean, I'm humble enough to realize it's, <laughs> it's how we touch one person at a time. Um, I want to go back to what you'd said about um, contracts. What, who are the contracts with? Because you said a lot of these resettlement programs have contracts. The U.S. government. Uh, through the State Department? I don't know, Deb. Are they through yeah. the State Department or yeah. through their Office of Refugee Resettlement? The Office of Refugee Resettlement, I believe, is under the State Department. Uh, yes. Okay. 
Okay. And they select local agencies to contract with? Well, they, it's a proposal, um, you know, it's a, uh, much like any other funding. So, um, but there are some, as, as Naja was saying, some really great Samaritas is another uh, non, mm-hmm. uh, refugee resettlement program who does extraordinary work. Um, Bethany and, um, you know, a few others uh, throughout the state, but mostly um, Bethany has been doing uh, unaccompanied minors. That's isn't that's their history, and and uh, in fact helped one of our clients, a family of ours, reunite with one of their children, um, the daughter who was separated while they were fleeing. So, um, you know, they they do a com- work with unaccompanied minors, and Samaritus has been working. Um, at, they used to be, I think, Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services is what um, mm. most of us could, you know, remember them as. Um, but they, they do incredible work now. Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking of all the um, Latin American children who were separated from their, their families several years ago. And, well, it's ongoing. And, and the, um, uh, the task of trying to reunite those families is just daunting. We have currently um, a family that's with Bethany. And, oh, I hope I don't cry, but the mom um, and children um, made it uh, here to Grand Rapids and was resettled through Bethany. There's five children. Mom was pregnant, five children currently. Mom was pregnant with the fifth child, beautiful little girl. She gave birth to this beautiful little girl who's now four months old. She's just so pretty, such a beautiful baby. And then mom died from COVID. And so we have the baby being cared for here by this incredible woman who stepped up um, over in Canton, right around the block from where I live. In fact, the car is full of things for them right now and some, some money to help out. And then the children are in Grand Rapids. But for example, Bethany is going to be providing, once everything is complete, Bethany is going to be compl- uh, providing uh, because now they're considered unaccompanied minors. This baby is right. Mm-hmm. Cause no mom, no dad, the dad had abandoned the family a long time ago. So they're providing formula and uh, diapers and, you know, they have the contract to do those kinds of things. So w- what you have to do is you have to say, for example, if I was working with freedom house, freedom house is providing shelter to someone, right. But the man can pick up the other pieces that freedom house might need help with. So in this, this nonprofit world, your partners are so critical because what one person can't, no one can do it all, sure. but what one person can't, you know, one organization can't do, another organization can do. So man doesn't do long-term housing yet. We don't do transitional housing, but we might be able to help with rent. So we lean on other partners to do those more long-term things. But I think all of us have a niche in kind of the urgent and crisis area, but then What's your niche in terms of long-term stability? Yeah, yeah. And that's what Freedom House is a two-year program. So um, while two years in a life sounds, oh, not enough, but um, it makes a difference when you think of three months or 24, right? So uh, housing a, a family while they're um in work training. So there it's uh, illegal and could impact negatively on their asylum case if they earn an income during mm. this application period. But once they're eligible, 
then there are many partners and I, I you know, Libby um, is on the call and uh, Wolverine is one of our, you know, uh, go-to places for employment. So who recognize the value of having an immigrant work, all the things that um, Najo is saying is that their, their work, you know, worth, worth ethic is present, the dedication, family values, the things that all of us are looking for. Um, and then it's a fair wage and health insurance. So while we're helping people look for employment, we're, we're saying to them, these are the kinds of things you want to look for. So that when you do leave after 24 months and you are in your own home, you'll be able to be uh, stable and, you know, enroll your kids in school. And, you know, a trip to the ER won't paralyze your budget um, and your future goals. So we look for employers um, that are, are fair. Um, and then there's many corporations and businesses who help our clients. Uh, again, asylum seekers pretty much are, have a history of being professionals. These are folks that can get on a plane or figure out um, and navigate their way out. So, um, you know, we had a doctor that was a surgeon working with Doctors Without Borders, and he had to flee while he was working with Doctors Without Borders. So, um, uh -huh. you know, he's in a field saving lives. The next thing you know, he's in a, a homeless shelter seeking asylum. So mm -hmm. there are there are those um, those pieces. And then you look for programs like Saman where there are connections. And again, it's the connection to services, but it's the connection to community. And, and, and you said it so brilliantly, our, you know, the, the, the certain network circuit of um, nonprofits, you know, we've been in here uh, long enough to know which, who offers what and what they're, um, and to know these people and to be able to refer clients with just, you know, to say to your, your colleagues, you know, our social services manager, make this referral. And it's, it's confident. You don't have to do the research ahead of time. The follow-up, you know, always we follow up. There could always be cracks. You know, you don't want to fall through the cracks, but that happens because we're all so busy, not intentional. So it's really um, a critical piece. And asylum seekers who come with these work skills, she's right. I can't tell you the number of engineers. Um, and so I'm always wanting to shift from what their needs are to what their contributions can be if we allow them into the country and deliver these, uh, which seems a lot for some people up front services, but it's really when you look at the, the overall contribution, it's the least we can do, right? So these, these engineers, these doctors, the um, lawyers, judges, social workers, teachers, all of these skills come back to us and then they are able to contribute to our own community um, by working in those fields. I mean, when we look at the infrastructure of our country, who built it, right? Who built the infrastructure of our country? So we want to continue on being able to, um, you know, welcome and support uh, the people that are coming because of, you know, this government, uh, you know, their government or countries oppressed and be able to bring those strengths to the United States, which ultimately brings financial stability to the state and to the country and, and so forth. So very proud uh, to do what we do and very proud to work with Saman uh, International. Wow, I mean, I'm hearing a couple of things that are just um, incredible, the, the collaboration between nonprofits um, and how critical that is. 
um, really kind of a reciprocal relationship. Um, the community, the surrounding community and how important that is. And then also thinking about sustainability. Um, you talk about the two-year program, Deb, making sure that you're, you're looking at sort of that end game to say, how can we help these folks be, you know, create a sustainable lifestyle uh, to be able to live on their own and be independent and contribute to society. So um, I just have such great admiration for the work that both of your organizations do. Let's take a quick break to learn more about Impact 100 Metro Detroit. Like what you're hearing? Across the country, Impact 100 organizations empower women as philanthropists to pull their resources and deliver a greater impact to their community. Impact 100 Metro Detroit, the first such group in Michigan, has experienced growth each year and will have given away over $860,000 since 2016. Each year, Impact 100 members donate $1,000 toward collective grants in increments of $100,000, which we award to nonprofit finalists who receive the most member votes. Our mission is to fuel transformation in Metro Detroit by uniting women to support local nonprofit heroes and award high-impact grants. Membership for the 2022 grant year is available now. Visit impact100metrodetroit.org to learn more or contact us at info at impact100metrodetroit.org. This information will also be available in the description box of this episode. And we're back with our interview. Um, I'm going to put it up to questions um, as we go on and continue, continue the dialogue. Feel free to unmute yourself if you have a question, have a comment. Um, Libby, feel free to talk about some of the work that Wolverine is doing. That's wonderful to be able to pull you into the conversation. Can I just, I'd also like to address um, the matter of language, English. Um, ah. I think, um, you know, when people come in, both organizations, I don't know of any resettlement or any organization in the immigrant community that isn't working with English uh, class. Yeah. And that is in many faith-based groups as well. So English is um, something that in our country, we are a mono language and it's important that you have the skills uh, to communicate. And one of the challenges, however, though, I sat in a webinar last night and I never thought of it. There was a gentleman from Africa who was learning language. And one of the questions or the words that was on this assessment test, which was gonna determine his level to go forward to the next level, whatever that meant. But, um, and one of the questions was blonde and it had to identify with someone with blonde hair. And he said, that isn't a word that we have. We're in Africa, blonde is not a word. And so oh, when we're identifying someone, go to your coworker, she's the one over there with the blonde hair. You know, that was a real, he gave that example. And I was just, my mouth was open because I've done that a thousand times, right? Um, and so it, 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 what he his point was trying while he was learning English, we speak in metaphors, which yeah. I'm, I'm going to use one right now. I'm the queen of, we, uh, you're, we're storytellers, we speak in metaphors, and it's so challenging. So when we are impatient with people learning the language, they're trying to learn the structure of the language. And yet we're, we're way ahead of, you know, in, in terms of the storytelling uh, process that we use. So English, when we're frustrated with people who aren't learning the language, many times they're embarrassed. Uh, they're, they withdraw, they're shy because they know enough to communicate. 
we speak fast. Uh, you know, I always think French speak, and when I listen to a French translator, I'm like, you think we speak fast? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's true. We, we, don't, uh, we, always, we don't always enunciate clearly. So there's a lot of, um, a lot that goes into learning a second language, which if any of us have, and yet that's going to be part of your sustainability. And for us to learn a second language, it, it is maybe, um, you know, those of us who don't use it in the home, but, you know, to be able to translate or, you know, we were asked in school, you know, what, what language and we carried it through. But this is a necessity for self-sufficiency. And it, it becomes frustrating when you read or hear you're in America now, speak American or speak English, and the pressure people are under to use the language when they really are trying to use basic. And what's the, the model of any education? If you don't use it, then it doesn't you know, stay with you. So I think that all of the programs that are working with uh, education and literacy, are really um, striving to put language into use that's also incorporated into a business model. So before Libby gets the floor here, when we're talking to people about what it's like to work at Wolverine, it's a meat industry, right? It's, 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 this is what, what they do. These are uh, emergency protocols. You're gonna hear these words. You're gonna maybe hear these sounds. I am a vegetarian. And I will remember when Libby's husband walked me through the meat plant and I was not at all offended because it was so, <laughs> I was like, you know, it was like, okay, you know, the slaughter, we, but he knew and he was very gracious. But what impressed me most was how clean it was. And I wasn't looking at what my mind had, you know, kind of captured in me. So when I'm saying to somebody, you know, a client who I don't, I'm not a counselor, but I'm mom, Deb, and many of them come and we'll chat and um, the language that you need to get a job is the language many are starting to realize has to be critical in their development into culturation. So, um, you know, it's really, really important that we don't shut people out. Uh, there sometimes is a laughter. I remember when I was trying to speak French and I told someone he um, had nice boobs. So whatever I was trying to say didn't quite come out that way. And so we laughed, I laughed, my face was yeah. red. But we were able to laugh about it. Other people would react strongly and not understand that in learning something, uh, you know, the challenges, especially as an adult, and then add the list of all the things we pre previously talked to. Trauma, leaving family behind, death, uh, flashbacks, nightmares, all the things that uh, our asylum seekers and, and uh, refugees are experiencing and on top of that, they're going to learn a skill and the language that goes with it. So, mm -hmm. it's, that's a lot. Yeah. I'll just add to that real quickly. So one of the things, the man has one of the best literacy programs, um, highly recognized at the state level, but that's because we also teach immersion. Yes. You know, so they're learning, you know, for example, this land is your land, the song. Mm -hmm. We're teaching them that song because it gives them language skills, but also a sense of ownership and hospitality and welcome. And so, um, but teaching them this, this is, this is the experience when you go to a doctor's office, this is the experience when you go to the bank, this is the experience when you're going shopping, this is, and putting them in role plays that they create to be able to have those life skills. Um, because of course, if you can't communicate, it's, it's, it's gonna be difficult. 
mostly because you can't understand your kids who are learning English at a rapid rate. Sure. Well, that language is just critical all around, but it's uh, tough when it's on top of everything else they're trying to navigate while they're here. So Libby, were you going to offer something? Just to piggyback on the language, when I um, was in college, I was a French major and I had the opportunity to study in, in France for a year. Mind you, after studying the language for many years, and it is just incredible to me, the courage. I mean, obviously these people are leaving horrible circumstances, but the language piece alone, me living in France, knowing the language, it's so difficult to communicate and to show who you are in this foreign language that you may not have a complete mastery of. It's really hard to be known and and make yourself a part of the community. It's just incredible what these people are capable of and the courage that they have. As far as Wolverine goes, Deb knows way more about about, um, Freedom House alumni at Wolverine than I do. It's my father's company and my husband works there. And, um, you know, I know that Aaron is my husband. He's, he is constantly pleased when he gets someone from Freedom House because they're such wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do wonderful, you know, they have a great work ethic and they're happy to be there. And um, that's a, I'm, it's a wonderful relationship. But I do think Deb probably knows a little bit more about it than I do. And I we grew, think up, it would we help. grew up with Wolverine. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, th- I would think it would help as an employer that the employer doesn't have the immigration burden. Um, if, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, Deb, that, that Freedom House handles the immigration portion of it, because uh, yeah. normally that falls on, that, that obligation falls on the employer. Is that correct? That's correct. So once they have their uh, legal work authorization, that Freedom House has been a part of that process, then they can be referred to work. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, they may have some in their HR department, but that is something we take care of. Um, so, you know, it, it is, and that is a big, uh, I wanna say a burden, but it's a large piece of an HR department, sure. right? How oh yeah. Country under what visa and yeah. making sure that, you know, when the visa expires that you're on top of it because the yeah. burden there is on the employer. It is, but you're removing, you're helping to remove one more barrier. Correct. Yeah. Barrier, immigration is a barrier, uh, housing, um, all those pieces. Deb, I have a question. Once, yeah. once these residents have those work permits, is that at the very end of the two years? So they're no longer living with you? Not you always. Look- so the process to obtain work authorization is that once the application for asylum has been submitted and the United States, uh, you know, Homeland Security, it goes to a clearinghouse, they, the client claimant gets a receipt And that's really where they get their alien number and a document that says you are legally here as an asylum seeker. And then the clock, what we call the employment clock in in our business, um, the employment clock starts ticking. And it used to be uh, about six months, someone would wait for their work authorization. Now with the previous administration that has not been changed yet, it's 365 days. So it's one year from the time they submit their application to work that they are um, you know, eligible to apply for work authorization and receive it. So I think that's the critical piece is it's about a year. 
And then they have a year, nine months to a year where they are working. They have, uh, we have something called Freedom Works where they work with a case manager to help them sort through some of the difficulties that they may experience on the job. Um, as much as I'm proud to be an American, it's embarrassing how many people in a particular work environments will chastise someone for their bravery and commitment and instead name call them. So we do a little bit of that. And then they're able to save enough money so that at the end of the two years, our housing case manager will then help them review uh, apartments, housing, whichever, you know, whatever their commitment. Sometimes they, they'll find a, a, an alumni. It's wonderful. They never met each other prior to coming to Freedom House, and then they become housemates and lifelong mm -hmm. friends um, where they'll live together. So it's usually about um, a year, uh, 12, I don't know. 15 months maybe, and then uh, they have that extra time. So we really encourage them. We're located in Southwest Detroit and a lot of um, other industries are not really uh, in the area. So getting a car is something that we really stress, you know, save money for a car and they have a network of, of um, which goes back to Zamana, you know, her point was there is a network uh, of nonprofits, of course, but immigrants themselves form networks because I, I, I'm going to speak freely here. I'm amazed at the number of people saying things like, well, I did it. They should too. I had to struggle. They should too. And that goes against everything my parents raised me. My parents, they didn't spoil us. Trust me, I was working at 16, but they would say, we're doing this because our experience was so hard. We want yours to be better. Mm. And so with immigrants, they are the voice of that. Look at, this is what we had to go through. We don't want you to go through that. So do it this way. Or here's, you know, go to the Zaman International. They're so good. They're kind. They'll treat you with respect. That's the underground and the same thing with the cars, right? If there's someone who's selling cars that don't break down, that aren't, you know, a couple thousand miles and the whole car breaks out. Um, so the immigrants and refugees and the network that they bring themselves in will also help them get through those services. So mm -hmm. there's another aspect to that as well. <clears throat> that I've experienced with both the Iraqi refugees that arrived here, you know, cause Detroit is a hub for refugee resettlement and immigration. It always has been, it will continue to be. Um, and then the Syrian refugees, different though. Also when there's political strife, let's say for in Iraq, for example, during, you know, the whole Gulf war and the refugees who came from that, there were those who were pro Saddam Hussein and those who were anti-Saddam Hussein. And when they then come into the United States and start to settle in neighborhoods and meet people, if they were a translator, for example, they may also be considered a traitor. Mm -hmm. So even though that even though they feel safe, sometimes they're careful to talk about how they got here or why. And and you know. I've watched them navigate that. Again, something that I learned through their resettlement process. Um, so we also do a lot about privacy and when you know what their circumstances are, obviously remain extremely confidential because you don't wanna put them in a situation where they may be safe in this country, but not safe in their own neighborhood. You know, because they could be stigmatized. Mm -hmm. Or their family, yeah, or their family back home, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think we have to be careful too that we're not making assumptions about um, you know refugees that we meet, you know what their political loyalties might be. We don't know. Right. It's like in the U.S., we don't know what people's political loyalties are. So, wow, you raise um, <laughs> some some fascinating issues. Um, and and a lot of what you're talking about is is refugees and and asylum seekers in general. Can you talk a little specifically about what you're doing with Afghan refugees? Um, I know there's, um, I've read that I think we're expecting several hundred to be settled in Michigan. We're waiting. Uh, Zaman is wow. uh, in a waiting pattern. I've been on the phone with um, people who are affiliated with the Office of Refugee Resettlement because Zaman has partners like in Washington, D.C. as well. Uh, currently, there's a large group that is uh, at a military base in Wisconsin, uh, you know, waiting for that. Again, I don't like the word, but I want to call it integration. They call it processing um, to happen. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're geared up. We're ready. We've had people from the Afghan community, restaurant owners, doctors, um, other, and just in general, just, just donors in general calling to say, what can we do to help support? Wow. So we did create, you know, a donation campaign and also, you know, we're, we're ready to go. So, once Bethany or, or whomever, um, you know, gets them resettled, then after, you know, that, that three months, Zaman will definitely be involved in helping out. Uh, again, we have this one baby and the baby siblings that we're working with right now. But other than that, I'm waiting. We're waiting. Okay. I don't know if it's different for you, Deb. Yeah, I think, well, in, in terms of um, this particular group of people, but Freedom House, we've been serving uh, families, individuals and families from Afghanistan for years. And so our services will continue our networks as, as Michelle meant. You know, they're, they're all in place. Uh, you know, I hear the Can you put your, yeah, we're getting a lot of background noise. Um, um, that's probably my fault. Um, I'm walking. I mean, when, when we get to an opportunity, I did have a question. This okay. Can you, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead, Deb. So, yeah, so we're, we're ready. Um, our doors are always open, you know, um, the, the community, but I think what, um, boy, Naja, the, the, the points are well, which is we were ready when the Syrians came and we were ready when, you know, with Bosnia. So it's, it's a, an organization that regardless of who's coming, you know, we're all poised and ready to serve and have our networks of support in place. So, um, I think that that's the amazing thing. And one thing that I was glad to hear uh, is that President Biden did increase the cap of refugees that are allowed in the United States. So um, I, I, I hate, I, I, speaking from a humanity aspect, we want to save people's lives. Speaking from a practical, I wanna live in Michigan and I wanna get our representatives back. Our last census did not do us well in Detroit and Michigan. So, you know, we want to be able to bring our state back. We wanna bring our country back so that we have enough representation of the various uh, thoughts, feelings, lifestyles that bring United States to its, you know, great um, capacity. So yes, we're ready uh, and um, eager as well. And I do, uh, I'm so glad you mentioned Najah back at home because so many of our Afghan alumni 
are so reluctant to talk. You know, the media says, can we tell a story? We have permission to tell a story, but people don't want to go on camera. They don't want their mm -hmm. voice out there because mm -hmm. there is such fear back home. The sure. Taliban has control and they have control of the social media. So just one post on Facebook or one post on the internet. I mean, and this is true for, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa or wherever people are from, that mm -hmm. the government it's hard for us to imagine the investment someone looking, you know, because in our country, it's like the CIA, right? We think of them as this private entity. In other countries, it's the police. It's the people who are supposed to protect them. So they don't want to put their families in any harm's way. So um, that is the part of why making friends is, you know, everyone's careful, um, has a kind of a... Um, a shield in front of them, nothing that's standoffish, but very private. And this yes. is right now why people do not want to announce, yes, I'm here. I got on the plane. I'm safe. Sure. Some people can and, and will, and, uh, you know, we're grateful for their voice, but others will ask me, you know, will you please speak on my behalf? Because I'm afraid. And mm -hmm. we have been making referrals uh, for families getting what's called humanitarian parole, which is not an immigration status, but it's a status to allow people into the country where then they can apply for asylum. So not everyone was able to evacuate and those that are behind, those are the ones that are finding their own way and will need asylum and we're ready. And, wow. you know, to that, I would add, there's also, um, I know we need to get to the questions in the next few minutes, but there's also survivor's guilt that we have to deal with. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to share with you a moment sure. in my life that I'll never forget since we're all women on this call. Back, you know, when, when the Taliban originally took over before 20 years ago, I made a huge mistake in my life. And because I'm Muslim, um, I was standing up talking across the world about the fact that the burqa is not an Islamic tradition. And it's not. But then... After my, you know, thinking I was doing the women a favor, I realized through the Afghani Women's Network that I was putting women at risk because mm -hmm. many of the reasons why they adopted the burqa was so that they wouldn't be identified. And while here in the West, we see it as oppressive, for them, it was a mechanism of survival. And I'll tell you something, I will never forget the fact that I made assumptions out of, you know, my Western thought process as a nurse, as a transcultural nurse, as I never thought about it otherwise, as my Muslimness. So, you know, we have to be careful when we are labeling or seeing, especially in the media or identifying or cliching or any of these kinds of things that we normally do, whether it's someone who's tattooed from head to toe or whether it's someone who's wearing a burqa, like, you know, we make these assumptions in our minds about who people are and why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lesson to not do that. Wow, that's a, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Carla, let's, I wanna to get to your question. Okay, hopefully I can be heard. I tried to get to a quiet spot. Thank you ladies <laughs> for this great conversation. Um, I had a quick comment and then I had a question. My comment is around, uh, the giftedness of people that you mentioned earlier. Um, and I just wanted to remind everyone about a book that Cindy Eggleton talks about often. Cindy's with Brilliant Detroit, and she shares the title, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything. 
And it speaks to this idea of, you know, just because people come without material wealth or money doesn't mean they don't possess lots of skills and lots of gifts, and that it really is incumbent upon those of us who want to help to to know that and to embrace that and to engage those gifts. So I just wanted to, to make a plug for the book. It's very, very good. My what was the name again? It's, it's Having Nothing? Having Nothing, Possessing Everything. Having Nothing to Giving Everything? No, it's having nothing, possessing everything. everything. Okay. Having nothing, possessing everything. Wonderful. So my question has to do with, you know, for those of us who aren't in the space of working with refugees and asylum seekers, you know, can you help contextualize sort of that, the feeling that someone like me in particular, I don't know if if it's a race thing, but can you help to contextualize, you know, what we're seeing with the Haitians? who are here also obviously seeking asylum and them being, you know, deported and the violence that we're seeing in the plains and so forth. How can you help those of us who are lay people, you know, on the outside looking in, how can you help uh, to contextualize that so it doesn't feel so um, unjust? Um, I will give my perspective, which is Obviously, I work in an organization helping asylum seekers, so it's it's my personal perspective, which is that, um, you know, our origins in this country have been on, you know, forcing people to come and, again, build the infrastructure, do the work. And in America, I think we continue after all these years to lessen the value and impact of people who are different. Um, I don't know that I think there's also um, the the, uh, the race dynamics, which is why race is and nationality is part of an asylum seeker. Um, that we look down on people. Uh, back to what we were all saying, what we've been talking about, and there is um, that that mentality of you know power. I have more power over you, and from my perspective, even when I don't understand the fullness of something like this. Um, one is to, just to say it, it's wrong. Treating people that way is wrong. I have family members and they were in my house and we had the most interesting conversation. I mean that with love that they were impacted by things at the border because of, you know, their, their horses were being stolen and looted. And so they had a personal perspective. And so what I wanted to share with them is that's exactly what it was. It was personal. And so what they could do locally with their you know, government, local government, whoever it is, that they could fix this fact that um, you know, drugs were being smuggled. And, but instead it was this anger reaction of you're taking my stuff away. Um, and so I, I think one of them is to understand that people have to flee. There is, this isn't a vacation. They're not taking a, a, a you know, a boat trip somewhere. Uh, this is an urgent need for life, for their life that they have to flee. And if they're willing to do this and they're willing to hand babies over fences or across waters or in, in front of someone who's holding a gun, I mean, who would do that unless it was absolutely essential to life? So I always try the human element of it. Um, And most of us do know someone in a family who might be an abuser, who someone who might be a victim and how we we often want to protect 
the 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 uh, perpetrator because it might impact the the victim so well no don't call protective services that'll create a whole mess in the house and you know so we're always trying to fix the problem but we're really not we're just being quiet and i think that is the same thing here being quiet is not going to help um and so from a humankind perspective uh an educated mind perspective of not being you know, being fearful of change, being fearful of language does not equal react with violence, react with murder, react with hatred. So um, ask the questions, have more conversations like we're having today. Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah. Ja, and then, I'd just um, like to, yeah, I just wanna add real quickly. So Zaman, because it's Zaman International, we work, we have projects in 20 countries and one of them is in Haiti. While our, our the, the great majority of our work is here in Southeast Michigan. Um, we partner up um, with projects where there's disaster relief and things like that. I would like for Zaman to have a greater and louder voice in the space of you know, immigration and policy around immigration. But here's what like, makes my heart ache and what I want to scream about. But this is a personal, this is a personal leadership feeling. I will tell you that right now, I'm not representing the man in this, in this absolute second because I don't have the right to do that. But my personal belief is that, that the earth belongs to God. And there are no borders when the earth was created by God and when we were created to be, you know, God's people. And that's why the human family is so critically important to me while I work till the last breath that I can take to serve it. That common humanity is being erased. And it's being erased by, you know, leadership that thinks whatever it may think. But when we have a color schematic that puts, you know, white at the top and everything else below it, we have a problem that is deeper than the politics and it runs very deep in our veins. And, you know, it starts, it starts at the cradle. And so my big issue is, and it's happening, I can see some changes, but it's also getting uh, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension around it, but how do you raise the next generation of people to be more open to the human family and to not think that ownership of human rights belongs to them and them only. Right. But you know what, this is, this is deep because this is about the way our brains think. It's about survival of the fittest. It's about all kinds of stuff. So these are complicated and complex uh, institutions, but we all have to do our, 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 our job in trying to erase some of these deep, deep rooted systemic issues. Wow. This is a um, fascinating conversation. I mean, that I think could move into a whole nother coffee and conversation uh, topic. Um, uh, it's great. So um, I want to thank everyone. Um, just real quickly, just in a capsule, Najan, Deb, can you let us know as Impact 100 members and members of the community, what can we do to help your organizations and support uh, your work with refugees and asylum seekers. At Freedom House Detroit, uh, you know, and I think for the man too, I mean, we always need volunteers. Volunteers change 
um, is often at, the needs for volunteers change often. But one of the things that really, really need and strive for is to help with the funding and the operational costs. We can't do this if we don't have the facilities and you know all of the tools that are needed to provide the services. So uh, we have a fundraiser coming up. I'm going to shamelessly plug on October 15th. Okay. Go to our website, freedomhousedetroit.org. You will find information there. Tickets are 145. Still opportunity for sponsorship. Um, Wolverine is one of our sponsors, and we're proud of that. Um, but also, there's so many opportunities on our website to give and to get your kids, maybe, or, um, you know, so as little as $5 a month, someone could make, uh, you know, right from a credit card or an account called the Beacon Network. Another one is, is to sponsor a seeker, meaning that a, a, anyone from a region around the world, you can log in and for 30, minimally $35, I think the average is 50, to sponsor someone through, um, right again, just right from your account. We, you, you can do it and, and not worry about having to remember. Because while you know people helping, we can also be overwhelmed with people, different uh, you know, orientations to train people, but um, to able to help us stay operational, I know that's not always an answer people want, but it's so needed, especially now when we look at the numbers coming. Good. Okay, thank you. And Neja? So um, everything to what Deb said, um, and here's my, uh, here's my plug. Uh, I want you to understand that Zaman just does not only deal with refugees, and refugee resettlement. We deal with women and children who live in Southeast Michigan of all different orientations, sizes, shapes, races, everything. And one of the things we're doing now is finally, after 20 years of hard work, we are on the cusp of breaking the cycle of poverty in great part due to the money that Impact 100 gave us. So we are now moving into a new enterprise where we train our, our clients in vocational skills and, and in industrial sewing, but in vocational skills, they're moving over to the next kitchen. We're going to be giving them a living wage, um, which is $15 an hour. Yes, but that's still shameful. If you ask me, that's only $37,000 a year, Yes, but still three to three and a half times what they were making before. So here's my plug. We're going to start um, baking these cookies. It's called Rising Hope Bakery. Mm, and it. I want those from Impact 100 to come, number one, visit the center and see what your money did. But also, I want you to look for it in stores. And if you are an organization or a company that can either cater or host the point of sale for these cookies, we really, really need to get that out. And so, because that's what's going to be the workforce development program. So can you please help us um, with that next piece of, you know, Zaman's workforce development? Buying cookies, you betcha. <laughs> you, I'm telling you, you know, but but we need to host them. So if you'd like no distributors, um, yeah. I don't want to be in the cookie enterprise. I want to be in the breaking the cycle yeah. of poverty enterprise, yes. right? But the cookie is a way that we can give them a living wage and they can work here on site and still get everything that they need. Good. That's wonderful. And then it's an opportunity to put in a little um, brief blurb about what Zaman International does. Uh, and get the word out about your organization. I just want to thank you so much for this really inspiring dialogue. Um, it's It's been terrific. And I want to do one shameless plug for Impact 100 Metro Detroit. Our next event will be a virtual Women of Impact breakfast on October 14th. 
So go to the impact100metrodetroit.org website to register. And again, thank you so much, Naja and Deb. This has been just great. And to thank you, everyone. Thanks. So thank you. thank you again. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you, All everyone. Right. Have a beautiful thank day. You. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fueling Transformation, hosted by Impact 100 Metro Detroit. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share and invite your friends and family to subscribe. You can learn more about the amazing work of Impact 100 Metro Detroit on our website at impact100metrodetroit.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Follow us for the latest happenings at Impact 100 Metro Detroit.